everyone, it's Louise here, one of your hosts of the Feminist Book Chat Paris, a podcast that explores intersectional feminism through literature. Today, I'm talking to Lindsay Tremuta, a travel and culture writer who moved to Paris from Philadelphia 14 years ago. In 2017, Lindsay released her first book, The New Paris, which explored key changes in the French capital over the past decade. Her follow-up book is called The New Parisienne and focuses on the women of Paris. But as the title suggests, these women go far beyond the cliché, commercialised image of the Parisian woman which we're all too familiar with. I was delighted to receive a copy of the book and discover so many women that were previously unknown to me. Honestly, it's a breath of fresh air to see a more representative portrait of Parisian women. In part one of this two-part interview, Lindsay chats to me about the pitching process for The New Parisian, seeking out the women that she wanted to feature in the book, and the French concept of universalism, and how that impacts modern-day French society. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the FBC Paris podcast. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. No, thank you for coming. I'm really looking forward to our chat today about your second book, Congratulations, which is called The New Parisian. So I wondered if just very briefly you'd like to say hi to our listeners Mm. and explain just very top line basic premise of the second book. So hello, everybody. I'm very excited to be on this show because um, from one feminist to another, I think we have a lot we need to share together. So this is uh, very exciting for me. Um, The book really is meant to challenge the way we talk about Parisian women. Um, And I, I like to think of Parisian women as being a sample for the broader ways that we talk about women. Mm. I, you know, obviously I live here, so that's my, you know, Parisian women are, are, are the, the, the women I see every day. Um, but I also have seen the ways that they've been, um, flattened to stereotype and the ways that they have been, um, kind of branded just like the city has and the dangers of, of that being perpetuated much longer, especially when we're finally in a time when there's open dialogue about, you know, how misrepresentation is so damaging to, Mm. to individuals, mental health, to their feeling of, uh, connectedness to a society and their, you know, just their, their feeling of belonging. So, you know, that was one, one effort, um, I was hoping the book would make. And then of course, being able to celebrate a bunch of women who are, influencing the city in some way right what a luxury (laughs) so in in the intro there's this quote that I just wanted to highlight so you say the women in this book like the millions of other women that walk the city with them aren't new in the sense that they are novel they've always been here but rarely do they get the spotlight or the megaphone they deserve so the new Parisian feels long overdue (laughs) And it's a very welcome addition to books that show a French way of life, in particular Paris. Generally speaking, as you've just touched upon there, the literary appetite for content about Paris, Parisian women, French women leads very much towards the heavily romanticized um, and features, you know, let's say conventionally beautiful Caucasian women. And you kind of explain the history of this as well in your book, which I found really interesting. With with all of that in mind, how difficult or perhaps how simple was it for you to pitch this book idea to your publishing team? So very good question. I mean, I think um, if we go back to the first book, which came, you know, which 
I was pitching in 2015. Mm. It came out in 2017. That was a time when it was a bit more, it demanded more of a risk, I think, on the part of the publisher to divert from a, a formula that worked. So yes, books about Paris tend to be quite um, evergreen and, and, and always sought after, right? So that's one good thing. Yeah. You kind of know that you're entering this, um, this niche that there will always be eyeballs on. Um, but many publishers want what they know is going to work. And so here I came with this idea that was like, but wait, let's show a different side of Paris because, you know, we've been there, done that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And only one publisher gave me the green light because, you know, a, a lot of them said, yes, this is very interesting, but, you know, we, we're we more comfortable with, you know, sort of what we've seen before or right. a variation on that theme. Mm-hmm. And um, so with this book, you know, yeah, I don't know how much you go into sort of the specifics of publishing, but, you know, as per my contract, my publisher gets first right of refusal. So I had to bring the second idea to them anyway. But my okay. experience with them, with the first one, was so positive. And I had a feeling that, you know, if they were willing to allow me to do that book, that they'd probably be open to the messages in this one. Um, and sure enough, they were. I mean, what they really wanted, however, and this is where, you know, they pushed me to really find women in, in in different industries was to have a, a real diversity of of professional background I didn't you know I didn't want it to be a book of just women in food I didn't want it to be just activists because the activists are really easy to talk to <laughs> they have so much to say yeah. and they are quite easy to identify actually yes you know but it's finding the the engineer in you know, aviation, for example, yeah. or, or, you know, the designer who's actually in bioluminescent technology. And you're just like, what is this? But this is amazing. Like, I right. didn't even know this was a field, really, yeah. you know, so, so they really pushed me to make sure I was, you know, trying to get a range of, of professions. So did my agent, actually, she said that she thought that that was going to be quite key, because it's very easy to find super creative people. Sure. But when you're thinking about representation anyway, women who are in, you know, business and engineering and Mm. and fields that are less sort of um, traditionally sexy um, need to be highlighted. They need to see that there are people doing those jobs. Absolutely. So that was kind of like so they were receptive to it. Yeah, Um, that's brilliant to hear. You know, and I think if I were pitching it now, I'm sure they would be even more receptive (laughs) yeah and your deadline would probably be much more stressful than it already was because I mean who could have known when you you know because it's a long process as well two years publishing process you were pitching this idea two years ago and who could have known that you know 2020 would be the year that it would be in right and all the conversations we're having yeah I mean to be fair I I already felt a certain pressure um to you know, turn this around quite quickly because of the eruption of discussion around just women's rights in general, right? So we went from having the Me Too discussion to then, you know, oh, what's happening in America with, you know, regressing in, in terms of women's rights and sexual health. Well, yeah, abortion, anything Abor- that as soon as it comes to kind of fertility and, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And then discovering that those issues are very prominent here as well. And so, you know, there was just that overall discussion that I also felt pressure to to you know meet uh but but yet you know these conversations as we see are just mutating which is good 
Absolutely. And I would say kind of timing is everything in regards to uh, <laughs> your book as well, um, particularly because I, I do feel like these last two years, like you've just said there, you know, people like Rebecca Amsalem, Lauren Bastide, they've really come. And, you know, Rokaya Diallo, who is featured in your book, who we love, uh, absolutely amazing. She's been doing the work for, I mean, not all the women, like all these women have been doing the work. We have been doing the work, um, you know, for much longer than the past two years. But certainly in terms of Paris and the conversation in France, it has just exploded. Um, To go back to the kind of diversity, the range of women that you were kind of pushed and that you wanted anyway to show in your book you you explain in the in the intro that some of the women featured were kind of already in your circle I would say in both a professional and a kind of personal sense but you know the these architects these bio engineer I don't even know um, how how visible were they how how what was it like to go out and find those women were they ready to talk were they kind of not sure like what was that process like so you know what's good is that um i spend well this is good or bad but i spend so much time online (laughs) yeah and reading that i identified a handful of women that i didn't know but that i would love to speak to so of course you know the people who are used to getting requests were much easier, right? I mean, Hokaya. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's very much part of their job in, in a, a way, way yeah. isn't it? It's yeah, their yeah. daily kind of for sure. Um, there were, like I said, some women in my inner circle who, but whose stories I didn't know all the details of, you know, and so I was able to really like get a deeper sense of who they are. Um, But there were women, um, even actually in the activists. So there's Elisa Rojas, who is a lawyer and a uh, disability rights activist. And it took a little convincing to get her on board. Um, And that was mostly because she is very reluctant to be the sort of face of the disability rights movement. She's part of a collective. And Mm. so she really said, well, I would, I would like for it to highlight really all the issues we're fighting against and not just be about, you know, every step of my life. So it does cover her life, but the sort of arrangement we agreed upon was that we, I would really, and this was, I mean, this was my intention to begin with, but was to highlight all of the, the issues the disabled community is facing and sort of what she believes and what the collective believes needs to happen. So, you know, she was just probably because she's been burned by the press before, you know, she talked about how, you know, certain words journalists tend to use that almost it becomes sort of like disability porn, the way that they sort of, you know, patronize them and make them seem like, you know, the fact that they were able to brush their teeth in the morning is such an inspiration. It's such a miracle. Right. It becomes very easily patronizing yeah it's infantilizing yeah so she has seen that happen in interviews she's given and so she's very concerned about that Mm. repeating which I totally understand absolutely is that the French media or French media yeah mostly and I would say that's probably because the disability rights act and the movement in the U.S. um started in the 70s and I think the not the concern but the the there's slightly more care with respect to talking about these issues in the States because they've been doing it for much longer. Yes. Um, but, you know, I don't think she gives a lot of interviews anyway in 
um, kind of international. international media. Um, so she was really speaking to the French press, which is, which is important for me to know because it also highlights how behind, you know, France is in general on these issues and even talking about them. I mean, we're going to get into this, you know, a little bit uh, later on in the chat, but um, I think keyword is invisibility. Right. But, you know, so there was Elisa and then there, you know, if I'm thinking about, um, you know, the teacher, Sasuke, um, Sandra mm-hmm. Ray, who's the one who works in bioluminescent technology, and even um, Dr. Hatem, who, mm-hmm. who runs La Maison des Femmes, you know, that it wasn't that they were hard to get. It was that I had to, you know, sort of reach out to them and, and cold request to speak to them, which is fine. I mean, I do that for my work anyway, but, you know, it was trying to make them understand what I was trying to do and that it was a serious project. And as a white woman as well, I think there's something that that's something that I'm conscious of and sensitive. And it sounds like, you know, this is exactly the same for you. There is something about um, opening up a platform or wanting to have conversations with a community that is concerned. But again, you don't want to be uh, fetishizing, um, exploiting, not that we would ever set out to, oh, no. but it take, I mean, you know, I think you also have to be prepared to hear no, I, right. I don't want to, or I'm, this is just not my priority right now. You know, I think that's something that I'm conscious of. The only, um, actually, I think the feedback that I got was that they're happy that someone is, is prepared to tackle this I mm. think they've been you know they fight it in their local circles you know the feminists here are always very vocal about misrepresentation if they see you know the same old tired uh, depictions and sort of body shaming um, messages on on women's magazine covers and you know they are doing that here but to mm. try to tell the broader English-speaking world who looks to them with this like undying admiration mm. Um, I think they realized that they needed someone who needed, I mean, I think they were open to having someone who has that outside perspective do this and reach that market. Absolutely. I mean, it's always a kind of two way, it's a teamwork, this, you know, it's a teamwork thing. It's about, you know, all of the voices being kind of the same volume and not one person. Because it's not about me. It's their stories. Like that's that's the reality. You're the platform, you know, you're the kind of. And, you know, and, and it is about trust. I think that if I had just proposed this project and hadn't been, you know, working as a journalist for many years and, you know, having told certain stories already that they could look to and say, okay, I see how she treated this question, you know, that makes a difference. There, there's a question of legitimacy, of course, but Absolutely. also just can there, can this be a relationship of trust? Yeah. I mean, always been important, but I would say now more, more so, yes I mean I say I prepare myself for a no I've never had a no for the guests that we've had here or you know the people that we've wanted to go and chat to like everyone has been very generous well there I mean I I had two no's one was from a woman who works in Champagne and it makes sense because she lives in Paris and she feels very Parisian but her business is entirely tied to Champagne and so mm. It was a stretch. That was an early, like, it was a stretch. Um, And then the other one was someone who is very connected to tech and the startup scene here. And her no came as actually quite a surprise. Um, But I am much happier. I think the stories of the woman who I did include, it's a much, it's a much stronger story. And it's a much more fascinating story. (laughs) Everything happens for a reason, right? Yes. So... 
Um, let's kind of bring it to right here, right now. Mm-hmm. In regards to the current anti-racism conversation, uh, something I keep hearing and seeing is this this idea of this is a movement, not a moment. Mm-hmm. And for me, that completely feeds into the intersectional feminist movement because you can't talk about feminism without talking about race, class, gender, sexuality, ableism, age, you know, and so on. Yeah. So in the New Parisian, there's 40 women. Around, yeah. Around 40 uh, women. And, you know, something that really kind of uh, jumped out at me and from reading books at the FBC Paris, of course, and just kind of from the conversations that, you know, I'm having day to day, um, it's very, it's abundantly clear that black, indigenous women of color are very much at the, at the forefront of this movement. Um, they are organizing or they are educating or they are protesting or they're doing all of the above. Bref, like they're carrying the bulk of mm-hmm. the work, right? Therefore, as we were kind of saying, New Parisian feels incredibly timely given all the uncomfortable conversations um, that you know we have to be having right now and France as a country. For the benefit of non-French or kind of non-French based uh, listeners, who may not have any idea of what, you know, racism, sexism, LGBTQ plus discrimination or disability uh, looks like in France. Could you perhaps uh, share with us um, a few of the women featured in the book who kind of are are doing this work Mm -hmm. and what are their fights exactly compared to, for example, your home, you know, country, Country, your second home country, the the US? So it's it's so interesting because I think for one, and I, I'm, I'm someone who had this perception of France, but Paris specifically, mm. be, given that it's the capital, um, when I moved here, which was that it's a very progressive city. Okay. I always assumed that, you know, given the types of um, parades and festivals that exist, the, the, the openly, you know, gay and queer neighborhoods, the, you know, mm. when, so we're talking about 14 years ago when I moved, <laughs> yeah. but still, you know, I, I, yeah. I assumed that this was a far more open place than in the u.s sure um that is not entirely true (laughs) in fact when you speak to people about their experiences it actually feels like that is the image that france wants to convey yeah but in fact is unable to address or at least haven't been able to address properly the discriminations that do exist so the one thing i will say um which kind of complex not complicates, but adds a layer of complexity to the discussion around race in this country is that you, it's illegal to, um, to collect statistics. So no statistics on ethnicity, religion, or race. Um, and this goes back to world war two and the fact that, you know, Germans were collecting all sorts of data. Right. And it was, it was in particular, it was, it was linked to the Holocaust. It was data on Jewish people. So there's a huge historical trauma there, right? Yes. Yes. So, That being said, that connects to the very French ideology of universalism. We are all equal under the Republic. So you might be, you know, French Asian, you might be Jewish, you might be Muslim, you might be gay, but actually you are first and foremost French. And that sounds really great in theory, right? It's it's actually quite a noble ambition. Right. But when you are not providing or equipping people with the tools to address when that goes off course because it Mm. is off course Mm. 
what are you supposed to do? How do you, how do you better the situation? How do you take claims of discrimination seriously? So I find that, you know, what I, what I really learned through interviewing the women for this book was Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not that they disagree with universalism as a, as a theory, in practice, however, it falls too short and, and is exploited and, and it, it allows the government to turn a blind eye to what is going on. So you have, you know, Rokaya Diello talks about in the book about how um, black and Arab youth are um, stopped for identity checks uh, 20, 20 times, times more yeah. m- more in, you know, on average than anybody else. Um, you have a history of, of, of violence, police violence, which as we've seen come out in the last two weeks since the movement, you know, sort of the the racial justice movement has exploded here as well, you can tie this back to colonialism. You can tie this back to Napoleon. I mean, the, the police violence in France has a, such a long history. We need to stop pretending like, you know... It's a is, new problem. It's a new problem. Yeah. It isn't, right? And and for, the, for these communities that have been, you know, oppressed, they have been saying this forever and and sort of not taken seriously the difference is is we're seeing it on video Mm. and then the government has the option to address it and are taking sort of this very you know oh well there are bad apples you know that that right but that's the minority kind of thing when you know it's not and I think I think this is where we go back to the idea of erasure or invisibility for sure you know universalism like you said Lindsay it's it's very kind of like noble but it's also ambitious when as a country France you have the second biggest colonial kind of legacy yeah um so I think it's highly ambitious I think this is something that and I'll include this in the show notes, that wonderful conversation you had with uh, Rokeya last week for Pandemonium U. Yes. Part of that erasure, um, obviously the French media plays a part because... Oh, 100%. Um, they're very good at intelligently, like fairly dissecting what's happening in regards to race in the US. But when it comes to France there's just this kind of resounding silence and there's they're very quick so i mean they're very quick to apologize for you know the the few bad people as they say that were you know sort of allowed all of the colonial traumas to happen um they they're quick to talk about um assimilation they're quick to talk about all of the things that remove any responsibility so there's no accountability um and 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 the people who do denounce and do um go into great detail about france's role in the slave trade in colonialism and in sort of upholding a lot of the discriminations that exist today they're vilified immediately you know Mm. so there's certain the, the media is complicit 100%. Especially when you're a woman talking about oh, these forget things. It. Because we have seen those videos and pulled our hair out. Um, again, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I keep kind of, you know, saying, Rokeya, there are, you know, lots of other women doing the work. But but she's the, she's the she most gets, visible. And she's she, the most visible and she gets interrupted after like one second of talking. But you know um, what? So just to, to pull in another example, um, just after the election on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So Mayor Hidalgo has won for another term. Yes. And the, I want to say she's, is she the environmental minister? Her name is Brune. Anyway, she's in the okay. Macron administration. She was, she was interviewed on TV um, and she was speaking with, on the, on the panel with her was someone from the, uh, the extreme right or the far right. Sorry. And, 
he literally would not let her get a word in. And so she came out and said, I guess I should have brought my, a pair of balls to the table because then maybe you would have, you know, people would listen to me and let me speak. So, you know, there's, there's this frustration and women are tired. Women who are in, you know, visible political leadership as well are tired of putting up with this garbage. So, you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's every time women are on television speaking about these issues, if they are even called to interview on television right. I mean just to get that just to get there they are given virtually no you know speaking time to an- to answer your question about you know sort of other issues if you look at the the the, the queer experience here mm-hmm. lots of ways that France falls short on these issues so if you think about um, reproductive rights PMA which is medically uh, assisted procreation mm-hmm. is still to this day because it hasn't been, uh, the, the bill hasn't passed yet, is still illegal for single women, single mm-hmm. straight women, and lesbian mm-hmm. couples. Couple. So these women, if they, if they choose to or want to have kids, they go to Britain, they go to Spain, they go to the Netherlands, they go to Belgium, Belgium where basically IVF, IVF yeah. is, um, legal. is legal. It's, yeah, it's an option. Um, the French Bioethics Committee has said that there is no reason this shouldn't be passed, um, but then it has to, you know, get the vote in the National Assembly. So the pandemic, unfortunately, threw a lot yeah. of the timeline off. Um, but we're talking about not just a cost, but the feeling that they are not considered viable parents. Um, right, and or that traditional... they're denied the opportunity. Right. Um so that there's that there's also the way that w- when when it comes to these issues you see this play out on television in the most egregious ways during the PMA debate when we're sort of at the height of this conversation about i'd say 9 to 12 months ago yeah. who were you seeing on television you were seeing bishops so all of the religious figures that France apparently like usually doesn't care about because mm-hmm. this is you know a, a, a secular a, yeah. sort of a faux secular culture all of these religious leaders are pulled out and then wow. often what happens is they invite men from the lgbtq organizations to come speak on behalf of women yeah so it's it's a very perplexing scenario and you're sort of like there are so many easy ways to correct this don't tell me that the lesbian women who are, are would be you know open to speaking about this are unavailable or that they're hard to find. They're not sure, or that they don't like speaking in public. No, like, it's, it's such a roadblock. It's roadblocks. Yeah. It's roadblocks. It's roadblocks. If you you know, it feels it feels deliberate. It feels intentional. Of course it is. You know, it's all a kind of waste of time and energy on the wrong thing because that you know the fight is kind of over here. It's no, it's endless, and it's the same. It's the same story with brands who pretend like they couldn't find black models or or you know asian models that fit their their needs for a, a campaign i mean it's 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 denial slash willful ignorance yeah and uh, privilege right and 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 so this is this is very much rampant in in french mm-hmm. and parisian society and mm-hmm. paris is very um you know, if you think about what, what do people think about when they think about Paris, they often think about the, you know, the philosophers and the intellectuals who have spent time doing all their thinking and planning right. here. And, and that's a very elite circle. Um, and today, 
it remains that way. You know, this is a mm. culture that's still very much about where you went to school and yeah. what's your family heritage. And, you know, so women like uh, Sarah Zouak in the book, who um, she is the founder of an organization called La Lab, which is basically giving a voice to Muslim women. Yeah. She is all of the things that meet sort of the, you know, the the prerequisites for being part of these really important intellectual conversations but she she gets the you know sort of the incessant microaggression of like oh you're so educated for you know they don't even have to finish the sentence you know yeah and so she's always felt like she's had to be the model minority she's had to be better than everybody else and that is you know that's a discussion that's global it's yeah, not it just- kind of feeds into the respect this oh like, yeah I don't like using this but the respectability politics idea totally that you have to do it better and you have to work harder and you have um, to be palatable as a, as a black indigenous person of and you have to be palatable yeah to, definitely to not uh put any unease on the white person and it's so obvious and yet the powers that be are very happy to keep these keep perpetuating yeah, these systems in these ways yeah. i mean she you know one quote uh from sarah that i i actually two there's one you know very bad statistic in france 70 percent of islamophobic acts are committed against women first one let that sink in and Sarah herself says, what's tough about growing up in France is being told incessantly that Islam is misogynistic and oppressive to women when this wasn't my experience at all, except no one's asking Sarah, right? Right. Like, well, you are. Thank you. Right. No, but, you know, people people are not asking these women what their experiences are. I remember, oh my, I was traveling at one point while I was writing the book and I turned on a TV, the TV in a hotel room and found this horrific show i can't even remember what it's called but um is it a french show yeah i think it's it's hosted by um what is his name cyril anuna oh yes you know who i'm talking one about one of the vilest men on french right. tv right so there was a panel discussion about the veil because of course that is france's favorite secularist discussion to yeah. have um and they had a woman who was completely veiled mm. um on on the panel and they gave her maybe like five minutes of airtime but not only that it's like you have these talking heads speaking on her behalf while she is sitting there Mm. and you're sort of like you just checked a box by having her present you think you did more work than other stations would have done yeah or other you know programs would have done um the fact is we have to believe them Right. If, if 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 a Muslim woman says, you know what, I do find, you know, these pieces of fabric oppressive and that is why I don't wear them. But I am still, a, you know, a, a committed and practicing mm. Muslim. We have to believe that if, if someone who wears, you know, the veil feels that it is, you know, their choice, we have to believe them. And this is the thing, the white feminist um tendency especially in france the universalist tendency is to say we need to save them from their oppressive culture absolutely because it is to say that we are doing it the right way exactly like feminism in the western world is actually how it should be it is the way and again it's this thing this this mold that every woman has to fit into and that's not the conversation at all it's like first of all you know uh western feminists shouldn't should be asking like muslim feminists you know how do they feel and also like anything there is not just one case it's not monolithic it's like and that's i think that that's the whole discussion here right that the parisian the parisian woman is not monolithic right women are not monolithic right 
and especially when you start getting into the Jewish woman, the, the Muslim woman, the, uh, you know, the, right. the architects, there's not one version, just like there's not one version of feminism either, which most of the right. women would, you know, would say. Mm. It's true that in this moment in French society, the feminists that are really trying to, to rally are the intersectional feminists. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I was under the sort of assumption that that was still the dominant thought you know, that yes, feminism needs to be intersectional or, you know, our work needs to be intersectional. But I think if you look at the majority of women who identify as feminists, they are not intersectional feminists, Mm -mm. right? And so it just highlights the need to keep these discussions going because the women like Elizabeth Berenter, who's, you know, a very affluent, best-selling author, you know, poster woman for Mm traditional white feminism she's not she's not getting us forward she's not moving us forward yeah that's it so yeah so lots of i'm sure there are parallels in you know in the u.s and in in the uk but i think you know each of these cultures are different yeah and and france has its own very particular heritage and we need to stop thinking that like the the women's liberation movement you know is yes it was revolutionary and yes it did a lot but it's not enough it's not enough it's not over we need another one of those (laughs) (laughs) it's happening it's happening we're we're actually in in the midst we're in the midst of it thanks so much for listening do feel free to leave a comment or review the podcast on apple podcasts and we'll be back soon with part two of the interview with Lindsay. you can head to the show notes Find the links to follow Lindsay on social media, order a copy of The New Parisienne, and there'll also be some further reading to some of the topics that we touch upon during our discussion. Bye!